The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not go into the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray? Lord, we know that your word is eternal and enduring. The grass and the flowers around us and our very world would wither and fade, and yet your word remains. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use your eternal word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see and to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, this passage that we've now come to is an interesting and perhaps unusual mix of scenes. And there are at least three different smaller scenes that we've covered in these short texts. And so verses 19 to 24 first show a small scene of Jesus before Annas. In, in, in the council of the chief priest. And then John shifts attention over just quickly for three verses, 25 through 27, and he puts the attention on Peter, and we see Peter still outside warming himself by a fire. And then just as quickly, John shifts back, and we see that Jesus is then taken by the chief priests and his officials to Pilate in verses 28 through 32. And in this way, in this mix of scenes, this isn't what you would typically think of as a section of text, right? This isn't a unified, complete story. The story of Annas actually began earlier in chapter, or in same chapter, but earlier in verse 12. 
That's when Jesus was taken to Anna's house. So what we have here is not the full picture there. And if you were here last week, you know that we preached last week on Peter's first denial. And so we've seen Peter's first denial before, and here all we get is the second part. And similarly, the last section takes Jesus to Pilate, but it's not the whole story of Pilate. Jesus goes on to have a long interaction between Pilate and Pilate with the Jews. And so what we get is a mix of three short and impartial smaller scenes that all take place on the night before Jesus dies. And yet, remarkably, when we look at all three of these scenes, we can find something that they all have very specifically in common. And that is, when we look at these scenes together, what we see is we see the way that Jesus Christ contrasts with those around him. Jesus is not like the high priest and his officials. Similarly, Jesus is not like Peter and his denial. And, and as we see in the last scene, Jesus is also not like Pilate and the chief priests with him there. And so what you might say is that our passage today is in a way, it's a study of contrasts. Jesus' nature and his very character is revealed specifically by looking at it in contrast to those who are around him. Or what you might say is that Jesus' righteousness, his holiness, his, his very godliness is revealed in distinction and contrast to those around him. And in this contrast, what we find is we find the opposite message in a way of the message we heard last week. Last week, Nate preached about Peter's denial, and the sermon was entitled, All Fall Short. And we saw that how in the inner workings of our hearts and in our inner motivations, we fall short of the glory of God, and we need the grace of Jesus. And here this morning, by contrasting that message, what we see is we turn our eyes upon Jesus, and we find that he, in contrast to everyone around him, is perfect. And he is the Christ, the Son of God. And making this contrast, what we're going to do today is we're going to focus on three main truths. And each of these truths, one is related to each scene, and they are given to us in contrast of the people around them. So first, what we're going to see is in that first scene of Jesus before the high priest, we see that Jesus walks in the light. Jesus walks in the light. And then when we turn our attention to Peter, what we find is we find that Jesus is faithful in contrast to Peter. And then thirdly, as we look, as Jesus goes to Pilate, we will see in contrast to Pilate, Jesus lays down his life for others. So Jesus walks in the light, Jesus is faithful, and Jesus lays down his life. So let's first look at verses 19 to 24 in the scene before the high priest. And in order to appreciate what's going on here, it's helpful for us to take imagine, or a moment and imagine the setting. Just to picture yourself being there and where this conversation takes place. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 13, John has told us that this band of soldiers captured Jesus and took him to Annas' house. So they are at the house of Annas. Now, Annas is father-in-law to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas, you may remember, is serving as head priest in Jerusalem. And it was Caiaphas 
who earlier in this gospel unknowingly prophesied about Jesus. And he's the one that said it would be best that one man should die for the people. Well, here what we have is we have Caiaphas' father-in-law, Annas. And what you may not know is that Annas is most likely the most powerful man in Jewish leadership circles at the time. Annas himself served as high priest probably in the first decade from 0 to 10 AD. And then no fewer than six of Annas' sons or sons-in-law went on to serve as the Jewish high priest. And so Annas is this man of power. And as a part of that power, he had accumulated great wealth in Jerusalem. And so they are at his house, this perhaps seclusive, but most definitely hard to get into place. And, and what we have there is we have them gathered at night and the power in the central hub of Jewish authority and leadership in Jerusalem. And so as we picture ourselves there, we also remember that it is night. It is perhaps the middle of the night. We'll learn later that when they take Jesus over to uh, see Pilate, it's in the morning. So this is taking some place somewhere between 12 a.m. and 4 a.m. in the middle of the night. And so the Jewish leaders have gathered at this exclusive house in the middle of the night, in the darkness of secrecy, and in the cold of that dark. And this isn't uh, what you would expect when you think of an examination, right? If you were to think of how you might put on a trial to discover truth, I hope you wouldn't call someone into your house at the middle of the night and do it in private. If you remember back the earlier scene, Peter had to have John, his friend, invite him in just to be a part of this. This is not the public square. It's not the temple. It's not the synagogue. It's in the secret seclusion of Anna's house where Jesus is first put on trial. And that background, the darkness, the secrecy, The control and power provide a stark contrast for Jesus' response to their questions. And Jesus' response so sharply contrasts with that setting of darkness and secrecy that they actually help us to find our understanding of what true humanity looks like. And I've generally described this picture that that John is giving us here as walking in the light. Jesus, in contrast to this darkness, in contrast to this being done in secrecy, Jesus is walking in the light. And many of you probably recognize that phrase. It's a phrase that John has used consistently through his gospel. And he uses it consistently because Jesus uses it consistently in his teaching. Jesus is calling people to walk in the light as the light is with them. And the phrase is so meaningful that John carries it with him throughout his ministry. And so last week, for our prayer of confession, we used a verse from one of John's letters that he sent to the early church in his old age from 1 John, where he says, he encourages the early church, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all our sin. And so here, in chapter 18, we find that Jesus' words sharply contrasts the darkness and the secrecy of the Jewish leaders, and he shows us what it means to walk in the light. 
And so looking at those words, looking at what Jesus says, we're going to look at two specific applications. And first, and perhaps most obviously, walking in the light means coming out of the darkness. So what does it mean to walk in the light? Well, first, it means to leave our darkness behind, to come out of our darkness. Now, Jesus himself, he's not coming out of darkness. We know that John's gospel teaches us that Jesus himself is light, and in him there is no darkness. But when we look at his words, the words that he says here in this passage, what we find is that they are an invitation for all those around him to leave darkness behind. So Jesus begins in verse 20. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. And that word openly is is plainly. I've spoken visibly. I've spoken in a way that you can see it. It's not in darkness. He says, I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple. And he's saying that I've taught out in public. It's been in the light of day where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. And this way, he's showing that his ministry is the opposite of the darkness and secrecy of those who are currently questioning him. And even more, the implicit question that he seems to be asking is if I've always taught in the light and we're here, why are you questioning me in secret? Why are you questioning me in the darkness of fear or the control of manipulation? The contrast between Jesus and his interrogators is in that way also an invitation for us. It's an invitation for us to consider any darkness we might be hiding or fostering in our lives. And now this, this darkness can look so many different ways, but I think we need to all stop and acknowledge, as we talked about last week, we all fall short. There is a darkness that clings to each of us through any sin. And now that darkness, it might It might look like the the darkness here that we find in the text where we might be tempted to use our power or our influence or our control and use that for our own good at the expense of someone else. Or the darkness could look like a besetting sin, maybe one that you're afraid to admit, maybe one that you're afraid to acknowledge to your family, to your friends or your church. Or the darkness could look like a past that you might feel afraid of or embarrassed of because you're worried about how others might receive you if they knew what you had been or what you've said or what you've done. But no matter what that darkness is in your life, Jesus is here inviting all of us to leave that darkness behind and come into his light to walk in the light as he is in the light. And as we look at the person of Jesus Christ, Not only do we find the exhortation, the challenge to leave our darkness to come into light, but we see that he also tells us about the motivation. That's our second point of application here of walking in the light. Not only is walking in the light leaving darkness, but we find the confidence to walk in the light. And that confidence could be described as its confidence in truth. Or, you know, a better way of saying that is the the confidence of walking in the light is the confidence of the gospel. Notice, first, how confident Jesus is. In verses 20 and 21, Jesus says that he's always taught openly. He's not held anything back. He's not ever said anything in secret. 
He's confident in what he has said and what he's done. And he's so confident in it that in verse 21, he invites the Jewish leaders to, in fact, you can go out and ask anybody. Ask anybody who's with me. They'll tell you what I said. They'll tell you what I've done. Ask my disciples. Ask those who've heard what I've said. He's inviting this investigation in a way because he's confident in everything that he's done that has been in the light of truth. It's been in the confidence of truth. But even more than that, we see that Jesus' confidence, we find that it's not just about what he's done, but it's about what he's planned to do. And we see that in verses 22 and 24. And after that first round of questioning, when Jesus responds with his own answer, an official of the high priest strikes Jesus with his hand. And notice Jesus' response. He doesn't lash out in anger or indignation, even though he is entirely innocent. And he doesn't respond in a stern reprimand or demanding his fair treatment. But what Jesus does is he takes the conversation and he takes it back into the light. In verse 23, Jesus says, If what I have said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I have said is right, why do you strike me? What he's doing is he is inviting them to consider the truth. Jesus is confident because he knows he's walking in the light and he's inviting them to consider that. And so walking in the light involves placing our confidence in the truth. How and where then? If we are to find confidence in the truth, how and where do we know what that is? Where does our confidence come from? Well, as we weren't learned last week, our confidence cannot come from ourselves. And so last week in Nate's sermon, we talked about how all fall short. And the Bible repeatedly and often reminds us that we fall short of the glory of God. So our confidence doesn't start with us. It is not something that is internal to who we are apart from Christ. And so it's maybe helpful to think about how that might apply to our different lives, the lives of the people here today in our room. And I think, children, you might ask yourself, what am I confident in? Where do I find confidence? And I can tell you, you don't find confidence in how well you behave. Your confidence does not come from how you act. And likewise, parents, your confidence does not come from how your children act. It does not come in how good you are at raising a good child. And those things are important, and they're good ideals, but that's not the source of our confidence. We can take that application and make it broader. Men, where does your confidence come from? It does not come from what you have achieved or what you hope to achieve in life, from any job that you might have or any lifestyle that you might live. Likewise, women, where does your confidence come from? It does not come from your likability or your popularity. It does not come from how desirable you feel on the inside or on the outside. Our confidence, all of us, men, women, parents, children, does not come from within ourselves. And we can make that application really specific. As I stand up here and I look at all of you, I need to remember that my confidence doesn't come from what you think of me as a friend or as a minister. My confidence is not in how good a preacher I am 
or how effective my ministry is here at Christ Church. And I say that because all of these things are great things to strive for. They are good ideals. And they are even part of what we work towards in the Christian life. But good ideals make terrible gods. And none of them would provide the confidence that is lasting. And so looking back at our text, we ask, where is the source of Jesus' confidence? Where does it come from? And it's not a matter of simply his integrity. That is, he's not confident just because of how he's acted. And as I've mentioned, if, if, if that were the case, if he were confident merely in his righteous actions, then we might expect Jesus to sharply criticize the servant who struck him. We might expect him to say, hey, you know what you're doing is wrong, and I've not done anything. I'm actually innocent, and you shouldn't be doing it. In fact, the fact that we're here in the middle of the night at this trial, that's wrong too. And he would be right and justified in doing so, but he doesn't use their injustice to reprimand them. And the reason he doesn't do it is because even when Jesus is struck, he still invites them to hear and listen to his news, to hear and listen to the reason that he came. He is inviting them to believe. He is pleading with his interrogators, consider what's true. If what I've said is wrong, fine, talk about what's wrong. But if it's right, consider it. Consider why you are hitting me. Even in the middle of massive injustice, Jesus is not wavering one bit from his message of proclaiming good news and bringing light into dark places. And so in this way, Jesus' confidence is in his mission. It's in the gospel. Jesus has entrusted himself to a mission of calling those out of darkness into light of seeking and saving the lost and bearing witness to the truth of God. Jesus has been living and proclaiming this good news from the very beginning of his ministry to now, and he does not waver from it here, even when he is unjustly struck. This is the confidence of the plan of God, the confidence that God will do all that he has said he is going to do. And it's the confidence that ultimately leads Jesus to the cross. And that was always a part of the plan, that Jesus will be led to the cross. And as a part of that plan, when we see that Jesus places confidence in his mission and in his gospel, Jesus' confidence then becomes ours. And so we realize that ours doesn't come from ourselves. We have nothing to be confident of, and therefore we have nothing to hide. And so it frees us. It frees us to speak the truth in love like Jesus does here. And we're confident to live in ways that are the same in public as they are in the dark, private recesses of our lives or of our hearts. And we are free even to suffer the derision and the outburst of those like this high priest official who would unjustly lash out against us. Because our confidence does not come from ourselves. Our confidence comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has been walking in the light He has been teaching openly and visibly to the world, and he has been living righteously, saying nothing in secret, and carrying out the mission of the gospel, bringing people out of darkness and into the light. And in this way, Jesus has been faithful. 
Which brings us to our second point this morning, that Jesus is faithful. Now, we won't spend as much time on this point because, in part, this news that Jesus is faithful describes everything that we've talked about so far. Everything that Jesus does can be described by faithfulness. And yet, also, we see that John specifically turns his attention to Peter, and he highlights that that faithfulness of Jesus by contrasting Jesus' faithfulness to Peter's faithlessness. John has drawn attention to this contrast in the very way he's organized and structured the story. Remember, the the scene of Peter started last week. It started back in verse 15, before our passage today. And rather than tell the whole story of all three of Peter's denial, what John has done is he's placed this picture of Jesus' faithfulness and of his integrity in between Peter's two denial or three denials, his two scenes of denial. And by breaking up the account of Peter's denial, John specifically wants us to see Jesus and his faithfulness in contrast to Peter. And as I've mentioned, maybe you've caught it, but the, the key word for this picture of Peter, I think, in these verses is denial. Two times in these three short verses, Peter specifically denies Jesus. First in verse 25, and then again in verse 27. And as if denial itself wasn't bad enough, and a double denial here, but this denial stings all the more when you consider that it came in the light of what Jesus told the officials. Because do you remember how this passage started this morning? In verse 19, the high priest questions Jesus about his disciples. He's asking specifically about his disciples. And then Jesus answered the high priest, says, you know what? Ask those who were with me. Ask them what I've said. And here, in verse 25, we zoom in to Peter and we see that the very person who should have been standing up for Jesus, the one who had promised to follow him even to death, rather than being faithful to his friend, denies his Lord. And in his denial, Peter shows us that he's not the person who he thought he was. He does not act faithfully to the Lord. And the very man who promised never to leave Jesus, who was with Jesus almost constantly for three years, who was in fact taken up on a mountain with Jesus and only two other people and saw Jesus transformed and stood before Moses and Elijah and heard the very word of God come out from a cloud and fell down on his face. You would think that would provide some motivation. And yet this is the man who is denying Jesus here in our passage. Peter denies his Lord. Jesus' faithfulness is met with Peter's unfaithfulness. The unfaithfulness of Jesus' most passionate disciple. And yet, even here, we see the good news and the hope of our Lord Christ. Because notice, this scene plays out exactly as Jesus said it would. In verse 27, John tells us that after Peter denies Jesus a second time, immediately a rooster crowed. 
And if you remember back in 13, when this, this night began, this teaching began in the upper room discourse, Peter says, Lord, I will follow you to the ends of the, the earth. I would die for you. And Jesus says, you know, Peter, before a rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And here we see it happens exactly that way. And so what we know is that all that Jesus is doing and all that he's suffering, he knew he would do in advance. He already knew that Peter would be unfaithful. And so Jesus is showing us that he is going to remain faithful even in light of the faithfulness of his most passionate followers. And Jesus ultimately shows his faithfulness in his final act by laying down his life. And that's our third point for this morning. Jesus lays down his life for others. And this final contrast, again, it shifts from Peter and it goes to before the praetorium, before the governor's headquarters. And you see it in verses 28 through 32. And the Jewish leaders has taken Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. First they were at Anna's house, and they went to Caiaphas' house, and now they're before Pilate. And though the chapter will go on to describe a long, detailed exchange between Jesus and Pilate and Pilate and the Jewish leaders, here, notice the initial conversation is just between the Jewish leaders and Pilate. Notice that Jesus, in this way, is essentially a bystander here. And in both sets of leaders, both the Jewish leaders and Pilate, they ultimately, in this passage, we see them trying, in a sense, to use Jesus, or at least maybe not use him, but to not care for his good and his well-being and lay him aside to get what they want. Both show little care for what is right, for little care for light and goodness. First, with the Jewish leaders, they show what is perhaps one of the most incredible tragic ironies in Scripture is the Jewish leaders, they take Jesus to Pilate, but they don't want to go in because they want to remain ceremonially clean to eat the Passover. And so here you have this group of people that are worried about ceremonial cleanliness as they are about to kill the one who offers all the only cleanliness that they could have. And the one who created the entire ceremonial system. And and you see their slipperiness and their their self-delusion in a way, even in their answer to Pilate's question. Pilate asks them, why have you brought him here? What charge, what accusation do you lay before this man? And they don't even answer the question. And they just kind of evade it and say, you know, if this man weren't doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about what he's done. We just need to kill him. And Pilate, too, he seems to take this pretty lightly and is merely, in a way, angling it for himself. He wants nothing to do with this situation. He first tells them, you know what, take them by yourself. I don't want anything to do with this. Take them by yourself and judge them by your own law. And what we see is that everyone around Jesus has showed unfaithfulness. And yet again, here is the good news of Jesus Christ. Where all the Jewish leaders where all the disciples, where Peter and Pilate and you and me would all fall short, Jesus remains faithful. Jesus endures the scorn of the Jewish leaders and he endures Pilate's apathy 
And he does so in order to lay down his life for his people. As verse 32 tells us, all of this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus has done all of this intentionally, on purpose, and faithfully, so that he could go to the cross and die. And again, hear this good news of Jesus Christ. Because I think when, when we try and put confidence in ourselves or when we get distracted from the good news and we, we look into other areas, what we find is that much of our lives are spent either trying to be the perfect human or trying to hide the fact that we're not perfect human beings. Now, every one of us fails. Either perhaps we're keeping things in the darkness that need to come out of the light. Or maybe we're, we're failing through denials and, and unfaithfulness. Or maybe we are acting like Pilate and acting like the Jewish council there at the end and trying to place our lives above those who are around us. But yet here in this passage and in the story, we learn that the answer to our problem, the answer to our darkness the answer to the besetting sin in our life is not found first in our actions. Peter didn't get it right first. Jesus went to the cross. Our answer is found in Jesus Christ. He is the only perfect human. He's the only one that walked in the light. He's the only one who remained faithful to the end. He is the one that has laid down his life so that we might have eternal life with him. And praise be to God, he is not merely a perfect human, but he is the very son of God. He is the word made flesh, and he is the light of the world, the one who has offered that life in his name. And he has invited all of us to believe in him, even now, even this morning. And as we do, we find this remarkable transformation that that. Our path to true humanity actually looks a lot like his. And so when we first place our confidence not in ourselves but in Jesus Christ, we find through the power of his Holy Spirit that we are led out of the darkness and into light. And we are led to more and more faithfulness. And we are led to laying down our lives for the good of those around us. Praise be to Jesus Christ the one who walks in the light, the light of the world, the faithful one, and the one who died so that we might have life in his name. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess now that you are the light of the world. You are the light of life and the one who has come to seek and save the lost and transfer your children out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of marvelous light. And we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you that you did not waver from your mission, having confidence in the hope set before you in the plan of salvation that you and the Father and the Holy Spirit purposed before the creation of the world. We give you thanks and praise that we find hope in that plan, that we find hope in your faithfulness, and that we find life in your name. Help us to believe in you 
and to rest in your faithfulness, we pray. Amen.